Thank you, worship team. You guys can have a seat. Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. If you've been following along in our uh, church reading plan, you'll know we're in Judges 3. So we're going to be working through this morning, so go ahead and turn there. We are going to work through uh, a bulk of the chapter, most of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing up front, um, but we will go through kind of verse by verse. I'll let you know where we're at once we get, get to the story here. But just to begin, let me, let me read a few verses. I'll start in verse 12, and I'll read down to 15. It says, The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had not done what was evil in the Lord's sight. Because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord. He raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjamite, as a deliverer for them. As many of you uh, probably know, the late Queen Elizabeth passed away several months ago uh, at the age of 96 after having served as queen for over 70 years. If you were on the internet much around that time, you probably saw a lot of stories uh, about her life and and who she was. Uh, One that went around was told by a man named Richard Griffin, who served as a royal protection officer for over 30 years in Buckingham Palace. Uh, His service included three years assigned to the queen's son and several years assigned to the queen herself as her personal protection officer. After her death, a reporter asked him specifically about her wit and her charm. And so he told... He told this story. He said, every month, uh, every year in the month of May, the queen would go away for, for a long getaway, private getaway. This, this particular year, the queen, she was out for lunch one day on a getaway with, uh, with just an officer, not a large crowd or anything. And, and usually in this place, they wouldn't really meet anyone on this trip. But on this particular instance, they ran into two hikers, two Americans who were out on a working holiday. If they ran into anybody, the queen, she would always stop and say hi. And so they did here too. And, and it was clear from the beginning as they started talking to these two men that they, they didn't recognize who the queen was. So the Americans are telling the queen about who they were, about where they were going next, where all they'd been to in Britain. And, and after telling her about himself, this one guy asked her, well, where do you live? And the queen told them she lived in London, but she had a vacation cabin just up the road. The one man said, well, well, how often have you been coming up here? So well, I've been coming up here since I was just a little girl, so over 80 years. He said, you can see the man's mind working as he says, well, if you've been coming up here 80 years, you must have seen the queen. <laughs> as quick as a flash, he says, well, I haven't, but Richard here meets her regularly. So now all the attention is now directed to this guy who's her protection officer. As he begins asking him all these questions about what she's like, completely missing the real significance of the moment that he's found himself in. If someone had just told him, hey, the queen is yay high, you know, she's going to look like this 
uh, and surely this wouldn't happen, but apparently that hasn't happened. And so here this American man is in front of the queen herself, yet completely unaware of it, asking her security detail to tell him about what she's like. When it couldn't get any worse, he says, says before he knows that this guy pulls out a camera, puts his arm around him, hands the camera to the queen, and asks her to take a picture with the two of them. This morning, we're going to work through Judges 3, where we're going to get to talk about this, this fun little story about the judge named Ehud. Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite, raised by God to kill the king of Moab. It's a story that's often used to talk about how God has a purpose in even the smallest details about who you are. Even the most insignificant things about who you are, such as being left-handed, God's got a purpose for that. Or maybe how sometimes you have, to, you have to go through some stuff to come out on the other side of God's will for your life. Or maybe this, maybe it's, maybe it's be like Ehud, the brave man that God raised up to lead people out of affliction. And we try to find ways to apply the story of Ehud to our lives one-to-one as if there's nothing else going on that the author intended to convey. But, but the problem that I want to pose this morning is that when we read the story this way, we become just like that man on his hike, asking the security detail all about the queen while she stands there right in front of him. We get all excited, all caught up in all the wrong things. We completely miss the significance of what's happening right in front of our eyes What I want to suggest this morning is that this story, read in the context of the biblical storyline that's already been developed, it's meant to stir our affections and elevate our hope for two things that have already been promised. Two things. A forever rest that's given to God's people by a forever king. A forever rest brought to God's people by a forever king. Some of you are thinking, well, that just kind of sounds easy, right? Sounds like the same old stuff. And in in one sense, I just want to say yes. Yes, the the Bible, it has a specific storyline that's about specific things. And these smaller texts, they're related to that larger story going on. They, They serve to move that larger story on in very specific ways. We would all say that, but I think too often we forget it when we get isolated down to smaller portions of Scripture. Our responsibility then is not to just jump straight from the text to the significance for our lives, we, we first have to do the work of figuring out how this text and these specific verses are connected to that larger overarching story the Bible's telling, and then, and only then, can we try to discern how it's relevant to us in the way that we think and feel and live in our time today. And what's this mean for our task this morning? Well, I'd say this, while this specific story is meant to make you long for this eternal rest, this eternal king, part of how that happens is that we actually have those things in mind before we get to the story. When we come to a narrative like this, we have to understand that as the author is, is writing for his intentional purpose, he's assuming that you're familiar with what's already been written. This means we're going to have a hard time understanding his purpose if we don't come to the text with a firm grasp of what's already taken place. So where might I be getting these 
these two ideas from, this, this eternal king with an eternal rest that he brings for his people. Let's first start with the king. How is the Bible up until now, given us a hope for a king, and what kind of king will he be? Eric did a great job of highlighting the the refrain later in Judges last week about there being no king in Israel. And he explained how that kind of points us to the absence of a king being part of the problem. But if what we're saying is true, that the Bible already has in mind a coming king when we get here, then where might we see that? And what kind of king is he? We see this hope for a king first in the, in the very first books of the Bible, in the Pentateuch. This is seen in, in one major way, and that's the pattern in how Moses writes the story. Moses writes and he tells the story of God's people in narrative form, but in several strategic places he stops the action and he writes a large poem. These poems, they always point us toward an eschatological kind of end times hope for a messianic king. So when the Bible stops to metaphorically sing with a poem, what it sings about is extremely significant in showing us what all the action in the story is really about. And it's always about the Messiah. Uh, much like a musical, when you, uh, when you watch it, you watch the plot move forward in just kind of normal fashion, right? But all throughout the movie, they stop and sing. I don't know about y'all, but when I grew up, I'd watch, you know, uh, Disney musicals or something, and they come on and sing, and I get frustrated, <laughs> Timon and Pumbaa come on, and they're running around singing. I'm sitting there like, come on. Let's get back to the action, right? There's more fighting that needs to take place. Let's go. This is how we often read the Bible. Like young Mark Russell, we miss the significance of those songs in telling us the major themes and ideas that the action of the story is all about. So when the Bible stops to sing, it sings about the Messiah and the hope of his coming. Genesis 49, he's told to be from the tribe of Judah, who's going to rule the nations. And in Numbers 24, it says the Lion of Judah is going to have a great kingdom, and it says he will smash the head of Moab. Now hold on to that now, okay? Whose head is he going to smash? Moab's. This is significant because Moab is used continually in the scriptures as a representation of God's enemies, and this king is going to crush them. That's the first way that he brings his people rest. And Moses in the Pentateuch, he stops and sings about uh, the Messiah in these ways, but he also kind of gives us a different angle of the type of king that this Messiah should be over in Deuteronomy 17. There he again describes what this same king will be like, only there he doesn't say anything about military prowess. Here he describes this king as a man who is a minister of the Lord's instruction. The king who should rule God's people is one who not only smashes the head of Moab, but he's also one who reads God's word. He observes all the words of that instruction. He doesn't turn from it to the right or to the left. He's going to reign and lead God's people with God's word. That's the idea there. That's the second way that he brings the people rest. He reigns over them with the word of God. And so this is who we're looking for. The Bible intends not to let us be face-to-face with him and not know who he is. We're looking specifically for the one from Judah who brings rest in these two main ways. He crushes the head of Moab. He's going to lead God's people with God's word. That's the guy we want. I just want you to stick a bookmark in that for now, all right? Just put it right there. Hold that thought because we're going to come back and see how this kind of all comes together at the end. But at this point, we we have to start asking the question, 
How in the world does this have anything to do with our story in Judges 3? Why is it important that we know all of that for Judges 3? That's what we want to try to see this morning. Let's keep all of that fresh in our mind here as we come to Judges 3. Because again, these are the things that the author, he assumes that we're familiar with. It's going to help us see what's going on in our text. We're going to focus primarily on verses 12 to 30. The story of Ehud, because it's the prominent part of the, the text here. But before we jump straight there, let's first take a look at the first seven verses. In Judges 3, it starts off with this short little piece of context before it begins moving us through the, the people's cycle of rebellion and the stories of the judges. So starting in verse 1, these are the nations that the Lord left in order to test Israel. Then it lists them. Verse 4, the Lord left them to test Israel to determine if they would keep the Lord's commands that he had given their fathers through Moses. But they settled among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. What commands is he talking about here? Let's turn to Deuteronomy 7 real quick. Go there with me if you would. And look there starting in verse 1. Because there we're going to see a verbatim explanation of what Israel should do when they're in the exact situation that they're now in. It says there, When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. Notice how similar that list is to the list in Judges 3. Nations more numerous and powerful than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. He then goes on to say how if you keep the Lord's instruction, you'll be blessed in that land and you'll have peace. But if not, he'll bring judgment on them. And then verse 16, just scan down there real quick. It says this. It says, if you say to yourself, these nations are greater than I, how can I drive them out? Do not be afraid of them. Be sure to remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. The great trials that you saw, the signs and wonders, the, the strong hand and outstretched arm by, with the, by which the Lord brought you out. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's what's happening. All the way back in Deuteronomy, the Lord is saying to Israel, I'm going to give you this land. The people who are in the land, I'm going I'm to hand them over to you. And when you get, you get there, here's a list of the people that I'm going to hand over to you. Even though they're far more numerous and powerful than you, I will fight for you the way I always have, and you will have victory over them. But you have to destroy all of them. You can't, you can't leave any of them there. You can't take them in marriage because if they're not destroyed, you begin to intermingle with them. They'll pull you away from me and you'll worship their gods. So you have to wipe them out. I got to play a little little baseball in college. I remember early on my freshman year, um, I was starting to struggle a little bit. I was starting to struggle. Uh, I'd been playing well kind of the first few weeks or so, but I hadn't really found a rhythm up at the plate yet. Uh, and if you've, you've played baseball, you know that that can be 
tough to find sometimes, uh, those stretches where you, you, just, you just don't have it. I was young, playing, playing against guys who were uh, three, four, five you know, years older than me for the first time, beginning of my career. The game, the game starts speeding up for me. I'm in my head. <laughs> I'm officially in my head. Can't even hit a beach ball, it feels like. We get to the second game of doubleheader, and one of my teammates, uh, he's just a year older than me, who had also played a lot his, his first year, the year before, um, and he can kind of tell what's going on with me right now. He can, he, can, he can tell that I'm in my head, and so he comes up to me while I'm on deck during this game and pulls me over. He says, listen, he's going to throw you a fastball on the first pitch, okay? Don't, don't go up and, and try to think about it. Just hit it. So I'm like... Okay, all right, he's, he's throwing me a fastball. I'm just going to swing, and if it goes bad here, it's on him, right? Uh, I'm, not do, I'm not doing anything trying to figure this out on my own anyway, so it's what the heck. Sure enough, first pitch, fastball right down the middle. Got a nice little line drive in right center field. Slide in the second, head first, get my jersey dirty. All thanks to my guy. My teammate had told me exactly what was going to happen when I walked up to hit, and exactly what I needed to do. It was because I listened to his words that I got a good result. I had his instruction, and in that moment, listening to his instruction, it was the key to my success. It was, it was the secret sauce, if you will, the key to my victory. And all I had to do with that was first believe it, and then just do what he said. Don't miss the fact that the author of Judges 3 here comes and he paints a picture of the exact situation that the Lord had said they'd be in. The situation that the Lord spoke about back in Deuteronomy, in a a futuristic sense, they're now here. They've come upon the land and those specific nations are in that land. There should be no walking up to the plate trying to figure out what to do because God has told them exactly what would happen and exactly what they should do when they get there. What we see right away is that Israel fails the test. They fail to drive these nations out. But why did they fail? Don't miss this either because this this is huge for the story. It's not just because they couldn't fight. They fail to drive these nations out because they've neglected God's word. They've neglected his instructions that he's already given them about what's going to happen when they get there and what they need to do when they get there. This is something that it's already been pointed out by the author of Judges, and Eric, Eric hit on it last week. This generation has grown up without knowing God or what he's done for Israel. They've neglected his word and the record of who he is and, and what he's done for them. Remember, what is it that Moses told them to do if they began to, to question themselves when they were supposed to drive out these nations? They were supposed to remember what God had already done for them in delivering them from Egypt. Believers, Israel has never known how to fight, <laughs> Israel's never portrayed as the, as the baddest dude on the block in the grand scheme of things. No disrespect to them, but it's true. They're like Captain America before he gets in that little machine thing. But friends, they have the secret sauce. They have God's word, the key to their success. And for them, not only does God's word tell them exactly what will happen, exactly what to do when they get there, but it also gives them a whole history of witness to this working out really well when God's people listen and do what he says. When I walk up to the plate with my teammates' instructions, it was the first time I'd had it. 
I had nothing to go off of. I just knew it couldn't be worse. So it was like, okay, we'll try this. But Israel here, Israel is supposed to have a record of time and time again, the Lord delivering them and them having success when he's with them. The author in verses 1 and 2, he points out that this generation grew up without knowing war and, and, and not knowing battle, but the point he's making here is not that they used to be so great and mighty in themselves, and now they just don't know the skill and the strategy and, and the technicalities of war, and so they're incapable. The point of them not knowing war is they don't know how war is supposed to work for them. They don't realize they don't have to be the baddest boy on the block to win the battle because it's God who fights for them, and he is. They don't have to walk up to the plate and figure it out on their own here because they, they've never had to do that. All they have to do is listen to God's word and trust what it says. They've failed to pass that word down. And as a result, this generation that doesn't know him, they don't know what he says, they don't trust him. And so what do we see happen? What's well, exactly what God said would happen back in Deuteronomy? when he gave them the instructions. It is exactly verbatim what he said would happen. Judges 3, verse 6. The Israelites took their daughters as wives for themselves, gave their own daughters to their sons, and worshipped their gods. And time and time again, we see in Judges, they, they get to this place and then they cry out to the Lord to save them because it never ends well. Is this not where we often find ourselves, by the way? <laughs> Is it not the condition of the human heart to look back at the Lord's word only after we're down in the muck and mire of life and living the consequences of sin and wish that we had just listened to what it says? So we read the story of Israel and we think, man, those, those people, man, <laughs> them dudes, they just couldn't get it. We do the exact same thing. We're just like them. And the sad reality is it doesn't have to be this way. Friends, we have the secret sauce. We have God's words. If we would just believe when the Bible says believe, if we would obey when the Bible says obey, if we would hope when it says hope, if we would trust when it says trust, if we would look to Christ when it says look to Christ, friends, I'm not saying life will be easy because life here will never be easy, but I promise it will be more peaceful. There's rest and peace available to you in God's will for your life that he, that he graciously gives us through his word. But like we often do, Israel has failed to acknowledge that. This is the immediate context that we find ourselves in as we, as we come to verses 12 to 30 and we read about the story of Ehud. Israel's land is possessed by nations that it was supposed to defeat. They're not enjoying the rest and peace in that land as they, as they worship the Lord as they're intended to. And they're worshiping the gods of other nations. So God begins to send these judges and it's, and it's here we get to Ehud. Uh, the story of Ehud, picking up verse 12, is a, it's a short narrative with two main characters. Ehud, the, the judge who is raised up by God, and Eglon, the king of Moab. 
The story is full of irony and humor, and a lot of the irony and humor it's found in how the author uh, describes these two main characters and, and just kind of the overall situation that Israel finds itself in. We're going to walk through it. I'll give you verses as we go, like I said. Uh, so just try to follow along with me here. The story begins in verses 12 to 15 with just kind of the uh, rehearsal of the basic cycle of rebellion that we see throughout Judges where Israel does what's evil in the Lord's sight. The Lord hands them over to uh, another nation whom Israel is subject to for a period of time. Israel cries out, and the Lord sends a judge to deliver them. This is where we're introduced to Ehud, the, the judge that the Lord sends. And right away we learn two important things about him. In verse 15 it says, The Lord raised up Ehud, son of Gera, and here it is, a left-handed Benjamite. Uh, this description is significant for a few reasons, some of which we'll come back to later, but the first thing it tells us is that Ehud was left-handed. And at first this seems like just a minor detail about uh, who he is, yet later on we see that it's actually a major part of the story because it's a big reason why he's able to pull off the assassination of this king. But he's not just left-handed, he's a left-handed Benjamite. And the name Benjamin literally means son of my right hand. And so what the author tells us with kind of some clever wording is that Ehud is a left-handed, right-handed guy. What's that sound like? Well, it doesn't sound so much like a coincidental detail, but rather he's being portrayed as someone who's ambidextrous. He's been trained in battle specifically to be able to fight with both hands. You can see this a little more clearly over in Judges 20, verse 16. You don't have to turn there, but it, there it talks about uh, 700 choice men from the tribe of Benjamin who were all left-handed. So 700 left-handed right guys, right-handed guys. And it says they could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. That was pretty good. <laughs> and it's not coincidental. Again, the point is not that there just so happened to be 700 left-handed men who were chosen out of the entire tribe. Rather, what we see here on, on a larger scale now is that the tribe of Benjamin, they're trained and they're skilled to be able to fight with both hands. We see this picture of the Benjamites, again, even more clearly over in 1 Chronicles 12, where it says, they were armed with bows and were able to shoot arrows or sling stones right-handed or left-handed. So this man, Ehud, he's the left-handed right-hander who very early on is pictured as a skilled military leader who we now expect to have some sort of military feat. As we read on, that anticipation heightens. In verse 16, we now see him forming a double-edged sword, 18 inches long, that he straps on his right side under his clothes where he would pull it out with his left hand. And in verse 17, that sword hidden under his clothes, with that sword hidden under his clothes, he goes to take a tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, the author here, he ain't really that kind of King Eglon. <laughs> the name Eglon itself means rotund, okay? So there's word picture there, but in case you didn't get the picture from his name, he just says straight up right there, verse 17, he was extremely plus-sized. The author here, he begins to mock Eglon, and here he mocks his his appearance, his physical stature. But again, it's not, a, it's not a circumstantial detail. The text has a reason that it tells us this. Because at this point in the story, who would you pick to win in a fight? 
the ambidextrous warrior from Benjamin with the sword tucked under his clothes or the unconditioned, out of shape, rotund king from Moab. That's the point of the physical description and what the mocking is about. He's portrayed as no match for this Benjamite warrior. Verses 18 and 19, Ehud, having finished presenting the tribute to the king, says to the king, I have a secret message for you. There's this very specific movement in the storyline here where Ehud, Ehud speaks and Eglon responds. And here, Eglon asks for silence and he has all of his men leave him. You can feel the suspense rising as Eglon seems to be playing right into what we expect to happen here. All of the king's men are dismissed. They leave the room. And then the same pattern, Ehud speaks again saying almost the same thing, but he says it a little differently. Verse 20, he says, I have a word from God for you. The first he had a secret message, now he has a word from God. But here, it's not just that Ehud gets more specific with the king as if uh, the, the word from the Lord is just more clarification on what the secret message is. There's double meaning in Ehud's words here when he says, I have a word from God. This word here that is rightly translated as word, as in word from God, it has a larger range of meanings. Okay, meaning just that the same word could also be used in a different context to just mean a thing, generally anything. You could use this word to reference a rock. It could be a shirt. It could be a horse. It could even be a sword. An 18-inch double-edged sword that's currently hidden underneath Ehud's clothing. This is part of the mastery of the story. Because we're, as we're reading, at first we hear it just the way this king would, right? Here's a word from God, just for the king. How exciting is that? God has a word for me. But we as readers know more than Eglon does. We know there's a small sword there. So we get the double meaning of what's being said. This again, it contributes to the overall portrayal of these characters. Eglon again is portrayed as no match for Ehud. Not only is he not physically up to par, he's not mentally up to par either. And neither are his men for that matter. Everyone on the side of Moab, they just go right along with this. They leave the room and the king himself now stands up in honor and excitement for this message from God that he's about to receive. Only the message is not what he thinks it is. And sure enough, in verse 21, Ehud, seeing his opportunity as Eglon stands up to hear from God, he pulls out his small sword and he plunges it into the king's belly. As if the king's size had not already been emphasized enough, the text says in verse 22 that his, his fat closed all over the blade so Ehud could not even pull it out and his insides spilled out. Again, a very unflattering picture of this king. Just when you think Ehud couldn't look any better and Moab couldn't look any more foolish, Ehud seems to escape rather easily. He just locks the door and it says, he escaped. <laughs> Verse 23. There's all kinds of debate on how exactly Ehud escaped and, and where he would have had to go, but none of that is really the point of the story because none of that detail is really specified here. All it tells us, in no detail at all as to, as to how, really, is that while the king's men, they, they wait for a while, they finally go to check and see what's going on, Ehud escaped by the porch after he locked the door. 
Nehud, the skilled warrior from Benjamin, has sneakily and cunningly come right into the king's palace with a sword hidden under his clothing, paid his tribute, got in a meeting alone with the king, killed him, and escaped without anyone having any idea of what's going on. He's killed the unfit, gullible, naive king of Moab and escaped from the naive and clueless men of Moab unscathed. At this point, it's really no surprise to us that he leads a victory over the rest of Moab too. Verses 28 and 29, he now calls on the people of Israel to follow him because the Lord has handed the Moabites over to them and this time they do just that. Under Ehud's lead, they do not allow anyone to cross the Jordan. They defeat 10,000 strong and able-bodied Moabites. None of them escape, and they have peace in the land for 80 years. I mean, how is that for a turn of events? The Israelites, who previously did not know how to fight, did not know war, did not trust the Lord to drive out their enemies completely, now are led out against 10,000 able-bodied Moabites, drive them out completely, and have 80 years of peace in the land. This is good stuff. (laughs) Things really seem to be turning around. That's what we're meant to think at first. We're meant to read through this and, and see a pretty positive turn of events. Only, it's not that good. Not if you've been reading the story up until now, at least. Because it's the larger narrative and story of God's promises and God's people that shed light on this story and to begin to reveal just how discouraging the story really is. It's because we've been good readers of the story up until now. We're eagerly looking for and waiting for two specific things. We're waiting for God to send a king who will reign over his people forever and who will bring his people rest forever. And remember now, do you have have your bookmark? Do you remember where we left it? We identified two ways that he brings this rest, through the defeat of Moab, God's enemy, and by bringing the word. It's only once we back up and and view the story through these lens do the subtle failures of the story begin to stick out. Consider how the story changes when we read it in light of these promises. First, we'll take notice of the fact that Israel has been living in service to the Moabites. Friends, remember the king that we talked about. Remember how the Bible stops and sings about him. The song in Numbers 24 sings about him. The Lion of Judah who's going to smash the head of who? Of Moab. Moab, the representation of the enemies of God and God's people. And here we are, Israel and Moab. Israel is painted in this this great picture through the portrait of their deliverer Ehud. And Moab is mocked in this text. The author makes a mockery out of Moab. But do not miss the irony in that portrayal. Israel has been subject to Moab for 18 years. Moab, the enemy of God, whose Israel's king is supposed to come to crush their head, is seen here ruling over them. Israel has a king, all right. The naive, gullible, sloppy, Moabite king that the text makes a point to make a fool out of, seen ruling over them, power over them. Secondly, with these larger things in mind, we'll notice that even though Israel is delivered from this subjection to Moab, Ehud isn't really able to solve the problem. Skip ahead. Chapter 4, verse 1. The Israelites again did what was wrong in the sight of the Lord after Ehud had died. 
Ehud, while a mighty warrior who delivers his people from the hands of Moab, leads them into completely defeating the enemy and leads them into peace in the land, he eventually dies and the people go right back into their sinful pattern. Now ask yourself why that is. Are we looking for a judge, this sort of pseudo-king from the tribe of Benjamin who's, who's skilled in war and delivers his people in battle? Or are we looking for the messianic king from the tribe of Judah who, yes, comes and the text says his clothes will be stained with the blood of his enemies, but who leads God's people with God's word? The one who knows God's instruction, who doesn't turn from it to the right or to the left, and who leads God's people with it. See, remember, the issue is not that Israel couldn't fight. The issue is Israel had neglected the Lord's instruction about who he is and how he's already worked for them, and they failed to trust him. And Ehud does not fix that problem. He's very good at changing the present circumstances that the people find themselves in, but he's incapable of affecting any inward change in the people's hearts, which is the reason they found themselves there in the first place. That's why as soon as he dies, what happens? The people go right back. God's people need the king to come who will not only defeat their enemies, but who will rule over them with God's word. Third and finally, it says the nation is given peace. And this is the rest that we're looking for. It's the rest that was lost in the garden where Adam and Eve, they're placed in this good land that God had created for them to enjoy relationship with him and worship him. It's the rest that's, that's supposed to be restored to them in that same land that God promised to give the descendants of Abraham. The rest God promised to his people after he brought them out of Egypt when he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It's the rest that Joshua spoke about. After Moses dies, one of the first things he did was he reminds the people with these words, the Lord your God will give you rest by giving you this land. It's the same rest that the rest of the Bible screams about. In Isaiah, the Lord says his, his mountain where his Messiah reigns, it will be a place of rest for his people. God is supposed to be with them as they go into the land. He's supposed to hand it over to them and he's supposed to give them rest there. And so when we read through Joshua and we read through Judges and we see them driving people out of the land, we're, we're excited because that means they're going to have rest. And now we get to Judges 3 where after all this drama, the people have now driven out their enemies as they were supposed to, but it says they had peace in the land for 80 years. How nasty is this story? They have peace, yes, finally, for 80 years. What? Friends, that's not good enough. Is that what God has promised? Is that what you ultimately hope for? 80 years of peace and rest when it's all said and done? Imagine, imagine one day, you approach the throne to meet Christ. And he hands you a lease. He says, sign here, sign here, initial here. This is good for 80 years. What? I didn't sign up for no 80 years. I signed up for forever. I, I must have missed the fine print on that one somewhere. Y'all are dirty for that one. 80 years. Friends, if you've, if you've lived in this life... <laughs> If you felt the weight of sin, of your own sin and living in a sinful world, 80 years is not enough. That's what this rest is ultimately about. It's about sin and death and the enemy being defeated forever, finally, completely, never again to be seen. 
But we read here, they had peace for 80 years. And this is why they need the king. The king who not only defeats their enemies, but who reigns over them with God's word. Because the reason their rest and peace don't last longer than 80 years in the land, it's the same reason they found themselves subject to Moab in the first place. They can't keep themselves out of the endless cycle of sin and rebellion against God and his word. Not only do they need someone who can deliver them from the circumstances of their sin, not only do they need someone who will defeat their enemy once and for all, not only do they need someone who will crush the head of Moab, they need someone whose deliverance and reign over them is absolutely saturated with the word of God. One who will lead them with the word of God. And so we read this story, Ehud is not it. As we read through the judges, they're not it. We read about Saul and David and Solomon and and none of them are it. And, And the Lord never leaves us in our sin. He keeps sending man after man until finally, finally, a child is born in Bethlehem whose name is Jesus who the Bible says is the Word made flesh, who grows up, and one of the first things we see him do in the Gospel of Matthew is he he goes up on the mountain and he teaches God's Word, who spent his ministry teaching God's Word, who defeated sin and death and the enemy through his death and resurrection, who sends his Spirit to not just teach us the Word, but who the Bible says writes that Word on our hearts so that we cannot fall away who now sits on his throne ruling and reigning over his kingdom with God's word, who will one day come back and fight that great battle with victory. He will crush the head of Moab and take his people up with him to enjoy peace and rest, not for 20, 30, 40, 80 years, but forever. Amen? John's vision at the end. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. That's rest, friends. That is peace forever. And it's coming our way through the forever king. Here are the words of Jesus in Matthew. He says, says, come to me. All who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Worship team, you can come up. Believer, unbeliever, anybody here this morning, this rest that the Bible speaks of, it's it's available to you right now. Right as you sit here this morning, the the eternal rest with God is available.
because the eternal king has come and he's made it available to you. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to live in the cycle of sin. If you would just see him as he is in his word, if you would just believe who he is and what he's done on your behalf as you, as you witness it through his word, you will have this rest. And one day, the king, he's going to gather his kingdom and you'll have peace forever. No more tears. No more pain, no more sorrow. Only peace forever. Don't miss the significance of the story that we're in. Don't get caught up in the man Ehud. Don't get caught up in the rest of the judges and be distracted from the real significance of the story that you're in. Follow God's words. Let a, let a hope stir up in your heart for something much greater to come. And let your eyes be directed towards an eternal king who brings a peace that does not just last temporarily, but forever. And trust in him. And pray with me as we close. Father, we're so humbled by your faithfulness to us. Lord, we don't come here week after week to hear something uh, new that we feel like may speak specifically into our time and context in, in the year 2022 in Holmes County. Lord, we need reminded of the same thing over and over and over and over again. We need reminded of who you are, of your faithfulness to us. Lord, we ask that you would just give us power to believe that, Lord. We don't deny that the circumstances of, of sin and living in a sinful world are hard. Lord, there's, there's battle going on right now. We're living in that. But Lord, your word tells us that we have victory. We don't need to figure it out. We don't need to figure out how to fight harder or, or come up with a different strategy. God, we just need to see you as you are in your word. See that you give us victory and walk in it. Believe it. God, we look back and we see your faithfulness to us in the past, Lord, we know your faithfulness to us right now. And we're convinced of your faithfulness to come. So help us to just look forward in, in hope and anticipation and trust that one day you are going to come. You're going to give us peace forever. Help us right now to live like that's true. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.